Cardology is now presented by Sardine, and I couldn't be more excited. You'll get to meet their founder, Soups, and some of the team later this quarter, and you'll hear a bit more about why they've caught the attention of some of the smartest fraud leaders I know throughout crypto, fintech, financial services, and e-commerce. Thanks again to Sardine for supporting this episode of Fraudology. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to the Fraudology Podcast, where every week we will dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of an online fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick. I've focused my career on online fraud prevention for almost two decades, and I'm trusted by hundreds of the most well-known e-commerce companies to help them prevent fraud and abuse. I strongly believe that the best way we can collectively decrease cyber fraud is through information sharing and collaboration. And through the discussions on this podcast, We'll do just that. The format and information of this week's episode is going to be a little bit different, and I am looking forward to hearing what you think. So in the last two weeks since I recorded the last episode, there's been quite a bit of fraud news that I think is worth discussing. And also I shared some fraud news, I don't know, several episodes ago and got a lot of great feedback on that. So I'm going to kind of change it up this week. Instead of an interview, instead of a one topic deep dive, I'm going to do this and looking forward to hearing what you have to say. Before getting into the headlines, I did just want to circle back on the last episode on refund fraud. This is a topic that I've been discussing a lot, but really wanted to give a full deep dive on what it is and and why it's such a big deal on the last episode. It does coincide with the upcoming refund fraud workshop I am providing for merchants starting on September 9th on Thursdays in the month of September and already have some of the biggest companies in the world signed up and I'm humbled by that and grateful and really looking forward to sharing all the information that I have compiled and things that I have seen work for merchants that I've worked with over the last year. In fact, I posted on LinkedIn this week or last week, I guess, uh, a post that I found in a Telegram uh, forum about refund fraud talking about one of the merchants that I've had the pleasure of working with on this issue for the last several months. And they were just saying, don't even waste your time. You might be able to get away with something under $100. And that was very validating for me that it's possible. So yes, that episode coincided with that, but I also just thought it was good. You know, I had kind of shared some little information here and some information on a podcast here and some information on in the Wall Street Journal there and in webinars and and virtual conferences over the last year, but just kind of gave a big deep dive. So if you didn't listen to that, that's maybe you might be interested in that. It's especially hitting physical goods retailers and food delivery companies right now. However, I'm starting to see some trends in the digital space, especially uh, on third-party payment providers. So not credit cards as much as digital wallets and, and other you know companies that often have their own internal dispute process. Refund fraudsters have now learned how to exploit that. And they are starting to branch out outside of retail and digital goods when it comes to those. 
So all that said, I got a question in my LinkedIn inbox uh, the other day, and I thought I would answer it on the podcast because if he's asking this question, I'm like, hmm, maybe I should have started at the very beginning. I think I made some assumptions about who listens, and I apologize for that. So I may have missed something. So here is the question. I just listened to your latest podcast and I have a dumb question around refund fraud. Okay, there's no such thing as dumb questions. Like I said, I just take that as, whoops, I didn't fully detail that as much as I could have. How can you get away with paying for an item and then returning an empty box or drop in a can of peas? Couldn't the company just charge you again? Refund fraud has me a little confused. So for people that are in retail, this is something that they have been dealing with for a long time. And I think that scale is a very big part of this. So we're not talking about smaller companies that maybe receive one or 10 or 20 returns in a day and the warehouse is able to keep on top of it. We're talking about giant companies that have thousands of returns a day and tens of thousands of calls into their contact center. And it's just not really something they can manage, especially because up until recently, These things would happen here and there, but they just, they weren't at the scale that they are now because they weren't monetized by professional refunders in this whole second economy. And so the scale is just out of proportion. That's the first part. The other part is they didn't all know, and and some of them still don't know that this is actual refund fraud. They're not picking up a pattern often because the warehouse or the customer service are working in isolation and they're not bringing in the fraud department because they just think, gosh, this is weird, but like all of our carriers must not be delivering very well or because of COVID XYZ, or they're not putting two and two together that these things are happening. So it really is an issue of scale first, but also the need for customer service. So just kind of going through an example, if I were to initiate refund fraud in this scenario where they're returning an empty box or they're dropping in other items, I would be watching that tracking number for as soon as it arrived at the warehouse. I'd be calling the warehouse or calling, sorry, customer service as soon as that happened, same day or next day and saying, hey, look, here's the tracking number. My item that I returned arrived to you so I need my money back. And most of the time, especially in these big warehouses or large return centers, they have an SLA, but it's not for a few days. So there's a few days of time that they allow just because there are some days that returns are really far. And also their biggest priority in a warehouse, if they're doing both returns and sending out items, is to send out items and get sales. It's the biggest priority isn't to issue returns on credit cards. So sometimes those things slip through the cracks and wait a few days. And so it's always kind of been this, I don't know, I don't know if it's spoken or not, but like this unspoken customer service rule where if someone calls here or there and says, hey, I'm really in a hurry to get my refund, as long as the tracking number says that it arrived at the warehouse, go for it. So that's kind of the premise that these refund fraudsters have been exploiting A lot of times, too, when the warehouse processes the refund or or it opens the box, I should say, a lot of times the people doing the boxing, the people who are sending these empty boxes or boxes with random things are cutting out the any identifiable information about the person. 
so that they can't link it to the order. Once they open up the box and they're like, ah, this was a can of peas. This was not anything that we shipped out ourselves. Or sometimes it's pinata candy or little green army men or balloons or socks. I've seen, I've seen and heard a lot of weird ones. So when the customer calls in with the tracking number, the customer service agent can match that to the order. But when the warehouse is opening the box, they can't match that to the order. So that's the other issue. Not all of them are doing that, but the smart ones are. There's also a method called fake TID or FTID that's really big right now with the fraudsters. And that, to put it simply, is manipula- manipulating the tracking number so or the tracking label, the return label to either go to somewhere else but the same zip code so it looks like it was delivered to the warehouse or a lot of other methods that are a little too complex to explain on a podcast and truthfully I kind of have to leave a few things for my workshop but it's just it's kind of insane. I think that parenting a teenager for the last several years has really adapted me (laughs) to keeping up with all of these different manipulations and exploits. It's just like they find a loophole and then you close it, then they find another loophole or they create another loophole. They're very creative. And yes, I've said it a million times, but I will say it again. If they just collectively put all of their creativity together, we would have world peace. We would have solved cancer, probably would have solved COVID. It's just, it's remarkable in in a way, but also infuriating. It's kind of this weird, like, I love it, but I hate it thing. And I think those of you listening totally get it. (laughs) It's a love to hate, hate to love thing. The other question is, couldn't the company just charge it again? So yes and no. Again, if they cut out the tracking number or like all the identifiable information on the label and a lot of companies don't have the ability to do a lookup in their system by tracking number because it's not within their CRM. It's usually notated and not a searchable field, at least with the systems that I'm familiar with. That could be different for other people, but for the most part, you're not matching the two. So that's the first part. You don't know what account is linked to this box of socks or whatever else you got so that you can't rebuild. The other issue is that a lot of times these people are placing orders on cards that they know don't have funds on it. Or once they get the refund, they're transferring it to another prepaid card where they keep their, they have a term for all the overage and it's just escaping me. It's like right at the tip of my brain. But basically they have, you know, they fund a gift card, maybe a hundred dollars and they start small and they just keep getting bigger and bigger as they keep getting these refunds. And they often, oh, I think they call it a float. They often will transfer their float off of that card so that if the merchant tries to rebill, there's no money there. I do know of at least one major retailer, probably in the top 20, probably more like in the top 10, who did do a uh, full round of rebills. And it was kind of fun to watch all the flurry on the fraudster forums about that because then they were worried, well, you know, I got a letter saying that they couldn't recharge my card and now they're threatening to send me to collections. Can they send me to collections? Because a lot of these people use their own information. But in order to do all of those things, you need to be able to identify who's committing the refund fraud and who are the consumers who legitimately didn't get their package or the package was damaged or there was only one shoe in the box. It doesn't happen very often, but it 
can happen. So it's important for merchants to understand how they can identify those by behavior as well, which really not trying to plug my workshop, though I do hope everyone who's interested can attend, but that is something that we'll definitely be going over. I think that's the, that is the second module because I think that that is just as important as learning how to stop it. Because just like in preventing transaction fraud, you need to find the balance between stopping the bad guys, but not having much friction at all for the good guys. It's never going to be a perfect science, but there's definitely some indicators that can be helpful. So, and there's also some process and policy changes that can be made that can make this easier on a merchant without making it too difficult on everyone else. So anyway, I hope for the person that asked that question that that was helpful. And I feel kind of bad if anyone else was having the same, wondering the same thing. But I'm really glad that this person reached out and asked. So thank you. Like I said, there is no such thing as dumb question. That just means that I think I assumed people <laughs> understood that. And not everyone who listens to this is a merchant or works within fulfillment or balances, you know, working in silos with customer service and fulfillment and marketing and sales and all the things, all the intricacies. It's been pointed out to me a few times in the last few weeks that I have a, I don't know if it's a superpower, but I have an interesting or unique quality compared to a lot of the quote unquote thought leaders in our industry. And that is that I have been a merchant for better or worse. I've been in those situations. I've navigated these difficult conversations and navigated having to, you know, creatively define ROI and, but creatively, but also practically so that you can explain it and justify it and having to, you know, determine which tools are best and, and all the things. So I don't think that I always think that that is a skill or a quality, but I think it can be, especially for empathy, as well as just understanding how things work. Sometimes if people haven't worked for a large name company or they just haven't worked for on the merchant side, they think, well, this company has so much money. Why does the fraud team keep telling me they have no budget? Or why does it seem like they're working three jobs per person? It's because fraud isn't always <laughs> seen as as important as we all believe it is. That's the short answer. There are some long answers, but we'll get into that another time. And actually, I did one or two podcast episodes a few weeks ago about demonstrating your value to your company. And that's really what it comes down to. That's not to say that there aren't people who have been trying really hard to demonstrate their value and they just feel like they're talking to a brick wall. It's not as simple as, you know, I can try to make it sound like in 45 minutes to an hour, but you know, what I can provide is things that I've observed from other merchants that have worked. And I think that as everyone is navigating this still emerging industry, it's important to cross pollinate information. What works for these guys over here could work for you over there. So that is one of my hobbies, I think, <laughs> cross pollinating information and making a flurry of introductions whenever I can. Okay, so I answered that. I wanted to get into some fraud news. The biggest, I should have like a do-do-do uh, fraud news desk sound, but I do not. The biggest fraud news that's come out in the last two weeks is the T-Mobile breach. And this is something that is downright scary. And, you know, a lot of times cybersecurity professionals or news headlines, even, you know, mainstream news headlines will talk about data breaches, but they won't necessarily talk about 
what that means. And I thought of this, I don't know, I wish I would have started out my LinkedIn post uh, about this a week and a half ago in this way rather than what I did. But you know, what goes up must come down and what gets breached must be monetized. And so whenever I see a large breach, I am instantly thinking about how is this going to be monetized? Depending on the information that is stolen, you can usually provide a pretty good guesstimate on how it's going to be used to monetize that information to steal from other companies. So, you know, just kind of a review, data is breached from company A, and then it's used at company B through Z to make money. You know, breaching information is only one one step. They can, obviously, a lot of times the people who are, you know, participating in the breach or conducting the breach, they often aren't the ones who are actually going out and monetizing it, but they are selling that information in bulk to fraudsters who will go and monetize it. So I'm looking at what's stolen. And for the T-Mobile breach, this was terrifying. And I think it's also worth noting that this was the fifth breach in three years. And again, if you want to hear some good cybersecurity analysis on all of this, I highly recommend a few different podcasts such as Smashing Security, as well as Hacker Valley News. Those are two of my favorites. I their CyberWire also has one with just news information every day, and then they have another one, uh, Hacking Humans, I think, about social engineering. But those are all great resources for cybersecurity information. I'm really focused on the monetization piece. But it is worth noting, five breaches, three years, that's scary. Here were some of the things that were exposed with for over 40 million T-Mobile customer accounts. And it wasn't just active customer accounts. It was past customer accounts, as well as people who had applied for a T-Mobile account and maybe not gotten it. So essentially what was stolen was application information. Think about all the information you provide when you are applying for a new phone carrier. That's what was taken. So For example, name, email, phone number, government ID details. So in the U.S., that would be your driver's license details or your passport details. Social security numbers, also specific to the U.S. Date of birth, IMEI or IMSI numbers, which are the phone serial numbers. So that's something that all of those things combined. My biggest fear is for SIM swaps. SIM swaps aren't really, they aren't impacting you. No, let me go back. So they are impacting merchants or banks or crypto companies. A lot of times right now, the companies that are being targeted for SIM swaps are uh, anything around financial institutions, accounts that have a lot of value in one way or another, because it does take effort to do this. And so they're really only going to do it for the hardest accounts to get, mostly the ones that have two-factor authentication mostly the ones that will send a text message to the user's phone to verify that they want to change their password or that they logged in from a different device or that they want to change all their information. There's various flags that a merchant or any company, you know, fintech, et cetera, can set up to require two-factor authentication to proceed. Unfortunately, with SIM swaps, this makes that challenging, if not impossible, to know that the actual user, the actual person who owns that phone number is the one who's verifying the account. So backing up a little bit, if 
you wanted to, I just hypothetically, really hope it's hypothetically, if you wanted to access someone else's account for crypto or mobile wallets or a financial institution or any financial institution with, you know, customer accounts that have value, especially stored monetary value, you would proceed well actually so first especially if you had all of this information which all of this information is often what's required to do this you would find out the cell phone carrier of the person who holds the phone actually unfortunately not too hard to do there are various phone directories especially in the u.s that can provide that then you would call the phone company and say you wanted to switch phone carriers this happens legitimately, right? Like we switched phone carriers a few years ago and then we switched back to the phone carrier we had before because we didn't have as good of service, even though it was a little bit cheaper. It was bonkers how night and day it was. And I think a lot of people have this experience. So both of those times we had to perform a SIM swap where we switched from one carrier to the other and we had instant access on our phones so that it wasn't disrupted. And that's something that from my understanding, is pretty unique to the U.S., and it's partially because of how competitive the different phone carriers are, but I believe there's also an FCC regulation that requires phone companies to do this quickly. I learned this from one of the top three or four phone carriers in the U.S. when I was speaking at a private event for a solution provider that provides a lot of identification, verification and authentication tools to phone carriers, as well as other top enterprise merchants. I was talking about SIM swaps and this was two or three years ago and they weren't half as popular as they are now. And I straight out said, would you mind sharing why you guys can't really put in like an extra step to verify and cited an FCC law. So that's, I, I don't know it exactly, but I know that exists. So they know that, you know, it will happen instantly. Fraudsters know this. Often they'll do this in the middle of the night, in the middle of the night due to the time zone that the victim is in. So oftentimes you won't even recognize it or know that it happened because they'll call back and switch it back on most of the time. So anyway, they ask to switch phone carriers and they say, can you switch it to this other phone? Well, they do that. The phone company does that. Now the fraudster has full control of your merchant, your phone number. I think I just switched who you are in this story. So I apologize, <laughs> but I'm hoping that you're following along. So the fraudster will switch the victim's phone number to the phone that they have. Then they will attempt to log in to a bank, a financial institution, a crypto wallet, a mobile wallet, etc. And when they are um, prompted with two-factor authentication, they almost always select SMS. However, they now also have your phone number, which is a huge identifier for most email uh, providers and others, so they can get others as well. And they will, once they get the two-factor authentication, once they get usually that six-digit code, then they'll enter it. They now have access to the victim's bank account or whatever they're doing e-commerce, fintech, etc., and they'll drain the account quickly. Oftentimes they'll call back and switch carriers. Oh, whoops, didn't mean to switch it back to the other phone just so the victim doesn't know right away and isn't tipped off. But at the same time, sometimes they don't care. So this is something that if you are a provider in any of those categories where 
this would be very worth it for the fraudster to do, you need to be concerned, especially on T-Mobile phone numbers. I think that that's going to be the number one identifier. And there are solution providers that can tell you on the fraud prevention side who the phone carrier is. And I had mentioned this on a previous episode and somebody followed up and asked me who it was. I was happy to, to tell them. I just choose to, you know, not really name vendors and let until uh, I have official sponsorships and even then those will be selective but there is at least one service provider and it's actually the one that I was just mentioning that I spoke at their private event in 2019 that works with these phone providers in numerous ways and they can actually provide the date of the last phone carrier switch so the date of the last port to a different phone carrier which can tell you okay it used to be T-Mobile and now it's, you know, with someone else and they have a one for the days since phone porting. Mm, pretty big red flag. And it's, from what I understand, it's within real time. So if your company is, you know, seeing this pattern, that might be something to look into. Also new account fraud with ID theft. If you, if your company provides any lines of credit by now pay later or banking services, you should be on the lookout for fraudulent account openings due to identity theft, especially the, since they have access to social security numbers, driver's licenses, and other government issued IDs. Those are often some of the core pieces of information that are required for ID theft. And then lastly, the, the main method of monetization that I'm concerned about is just e-commerce ATO. They may not use SimSwap, but they will, you know, use other information. So the compromised information of is, so basically they'll call the phone company or they'll call your company and verify their account with the information that was obtained during this breach. So they'll be like, ah, I forgot my password, but I can give you my social security number. I can give you my driver's license. I can give you you know, my phone, like all those things. So that one, I'm not as, I mean, that one happens all the time anyway. So it's going to be hard to track it to this issue. But those are the three things that I really think people should be on the lookout for. Within the show notes, I will include an article from Graham Cluley, who is one of the excellent podcast co-hosts of Smashing Security. And I enjoy following his security blog and like his take on things. So I'll include that as well as possibly a link to my LinkedIn post about it. But I pretty much just read about it. So I think we're good there. But that one I really just wanted to call attention to because I think sometimes as fraud fighters, your head is down and you're just not aware of what's happening at a 10,000 foot view. And then, whoa, where did all these things come from? And, you know, SIM swaps are challenging. A lot of times you're going to find out about them through customer service because the customer is going to call customer service and say, where is all my money? And a lot of times you as a company have to make that decision. Are we going to say, oh, you're out of luck or are we going to, you know, replace that money? And if you say you're out of luck, you guys might be out of luck with, you know, the backlash on social media, et cetera. So it's really challenging right now on who gets the light, who should have the liability uh, for fraud that doesn't happen on cards where it isn't really regulated or, or defined. That's something that I know the U.S. government is trying to solve, but it's it's too early to tell exactly what they're going to say, but I know that there has been some discussion about making banks pay their 
members back or their clients back when their accounts are breached or it's not breached, but it's like they're accessed or account takeover and then, you know, diminished of their value. I think that's something uh, to keep an eye on because if they do say that banks are responsible, I think there's going to (laughs) be a big change in the way some things are done on that side. So, and I know that not everyone who listens to this podcast is in e-commerce. So trying to, you know, keep it real. So this next story is probably going to make you guys giggle a little bit, some of you more than others, but I find it really important because it does really have to do with online payments as well as content moderation, which falls under trust and safety. Some e-commerce merchants have a separate payments department, especially if you have subscriptions and, and other things, because there are several aspects that can really be beneficial and justify at least one FTE, full-time employment employee or full-time employee, to focus on whether it's reducing your fees with your bank or increasing authorizations with issuing banks or increasing especially the authorizations on subscription, reducing interchange. If you have online global transactions, it's really important to do that. So those are all things that are payments related, but You know, if you're looking at just fraud, well, fraud has to do with payments. So that's how it's connected, as well as the outcome and some of the regulations that are coming out of all of this are really heavy around content moderation, as well as account verification and authentication. And so that's why I chose this story for this news segment or this news uh, podcast episode. But I'm going to read the headline, OnlyFans CEO on why it banned adult content. The short answer is banks, he said. There's another headline that says, oh, no, I'm going to lose my spot, but the payments mess that almost scared OnlyFans away from sex work is what this one said. So for people who aren't familiar, OnlyFans is a site that allows subscriptions for content creators and they especially became popular with content creators that provide nudity or porn or or those types of adult online content. Uh, especially during the COVID crisis and various stay-at-home orders, etc. There was actually a documentary on this a few months ago on Hulu that I did watch because I'm always fascinated by anything that has to do with the user-generated content, that there's definitely a lot of risk there, not just from a fraud perspective, but from a trust and safety perspective. And I also knew someone that had worked for a company very similar to them. And so I was just, you know, curiosity and probably boredom because again, COVID for a while there, there was no new content being created except for documentaries. So I watched a lot of them. So I kind of have some familiarity in the fact that there were people that were maybe exotic dancers or had other types of jobs in that realm that couldn't work and couldn't provide for their families or for themselves during COVID. Significantly hard to perform those acts in person from six feet away. Um, so sorry, I'm trying really hard to stay very serious about this and I am serious about it, but I'm sure you also just got to chuckle. So anyway, they went to OnlyFans to create that and they have fans that subscribe to specific user content 
and sometimes they can pay a premium for more and it's a whole setup. It's similar to Patreon, which I had Jacqueline Hart, who was the head of trust and safety for Patreon at the time on the podcast several months ago, a really interesting interview. So anyway, they came out last week saying that they're going to stop allowing porn and any adult content to be on their app. And I think a lot of people were like, well, then what are you going to have? Because that's what they became known for. I, I do know that there are some comedians and some reality stars and others who are on there. And I know that OnlyFans has tried to diversify their creator base, but for the most part, it's adult entertainment. And so there was a huge backlash. Some of these people are earning tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, and a couple are earning millions a month on this. And so they rely on it for their income. And there was a lot of backlash. And when I first heard it, I thought, oh, I bet it's because of the MasterCard thing, because MasterCard has updated some of their terms and conditions and policies, which will go into effect October 15th of this year. And I know that it will greatly impact Pornhub for their user-generated porn. And and that is a whole other story that I really don't want to go into because there was some really yucky stuff that was found. But there was a New York Times article that exposed some of the things that were being uploaded. And it's a different business model than OnlyFans, it should be noted. But they're still, you know, it's those rules, right? Like, how do you keep up rules and regulations with innovation, Uh, especially in the technology sphere, it's not easy. And so that was definitely mentioned in articles, but then the CEO, I wrote down his name so I wouldn't forget, Tim Stokely had an interview with the Financial Times and he blamed banks because of reputational risk. And what I could glean from the article, and this is kind of, you know, one of those things from being in payments and fraud for so long, I can kind of read between the lines is that there were there were three specific banks that he mentioned and I believe that they were for three different things so they were just examples one of them he said that they blocked every wire transit transaction that they tried to send to their creators so my assumption is that they were using that bank to wire funds to creators to pay them and that bank stopped doing that because they didn't want the reputational risk Then another one was blocking every single transaction on their users' credit cards. That happens quite a bit. Just like I mentioned, you know, increasing authorizations. Well, there are some banks that will just flat out say, we are not ever going to approve any transactions on that MCC code, on that merchant category code, or we are not going to uh, approve any transactions on that merchant ID. And there are lots of reasons for that. Sometimes it's because that merchant has a really high chargeback rate and they're concerned that that merchant is actually fraudulent and that maybe by the time their cardholder files a chargeback, there won't be any money left and they'll be out of it. They won't have, they'll have to eat the charges. Other times it's because they as a bank, whether for moral reasons or ethical reasons or reputational reasons, or others as well, they've just decided we're not going to approve transactions for this merchant or this group of merchants. There's some several years ago that did that, especially for online gaming, you know, whether it was multiplayer or role play or whatever it was, like online gaming was having a lot of issues with that. And the way they would find out is they would do a bin, you know, the first six digits of the credit card, they do a bin analysis and see, oh, are all of these cards on this bin being declined? 
Hmm, let's dive into that further. So that's another way that it looks like they were, that was informing this decision that they had. And then the last one is payment processing. And that really is, you know, the banks that they're, they're choosing to process payments. It's very expensive for adult sites to have payment processing. It's significantly more expensive because it's considered high risk. There are specific categories that Visa, MasterCard, Amex, and Discover, but mostly I think Visa and MasterCard deem as high risk. Travel is one of them. So it's not just adult things and others, but within the adult space, this is one. And so a lot of times it can be 10, 15% sometimes, depending on the size of the account. And high risk payment processors are, you know, most of them are happy to do it. I will say I've worked with a couple of companies that either facilitated payments for adult sites or were an adult site. And they have really low chargeback (laughs) uh, rates, which kind of surprised me. But a lot of it has to do with they don't want their account to be shut down. So they will pay their bill. They won't claim that they didn't get the item or services weren't rendered. So I'm not familiar with OnlyFans chargebacks, and I'm sure that there are a lot of other reasons due to chargebacks, not just adult content, but if they have them, but those were reading between the lines. Those were the three things that they were challenged with. And it does look like though, within three days, they were able to find alternatives. They didn't want to say who they were probably because there would be petitions from outside sources and others. This is something that's been going on for years. And like I said, it's challenging when technology and innovation far exceed or or just are faster than regulations, whether we're talking about regulations from the card brands or from governments. Two years ago, when there was a payment processor that had had, or just a bank in general that had had some brand damage, they kind of went through every single area of business looking at how can we improve our reputation. And one of them was payment processing. And they contacted a few merchants who a very small subset of their business was around adult services or content without giving away the company. (laughs) And they were told immediately that they could no longer process transactions for those sub merchants. And some of them were making a lot of money and some of them have been very loyal to this merchant. And so they had to figure something out quickly and they called me. And so I was able to give them an introduction to a high risk payment processor that I've known for a while and I think they do a good job. And so that was that, but they were saying like it was becoming really challenging because they had user generated content. And it was like, well, is someone who cooks naked considered adult or is it just art? What if somebody paints naked? What if somebody, you know, whatever is, is that considered adult or is that just considered art? So it's a spectrum. And I think that if you have any user generated content, I think it's really important to have these conversations with your payment processors. You want to tell them that this is happening before they find out as a surprise, because then they wonder what else you're keeping from them. And there are some pretty nifty tools on the payment processor side to be able to track what you're offering on your website. Uh, without having a human having to look at it sporadically. So know that. I will say that there have been, there has been a real push. And this is the other piece that I wanted to make sure that why I included the story is because there is becoming, there are becoming more requirements for user generated content on platforms like this to have more content moderation, to invest in more trust and safety. 
And in some cases, and in a lot of cases, especially in the adult world, they need to be able to verify age. And there are some really good services out there. I think some are better than others at verifying the age of a user on your website. They're also, a lot of them, are, especially for content creators, are cre- requiring government-issued ID and uploading it through a system. And there are several vendors that offer that. Again, varying levels of success. But there are, you know, providers that offer that. And I'm so lucky to have people tell me which ones are the best and not by users. So I, that's why I know that some are better than others. But um always happy to pass on that information to a merchant if I have, you know, spare time and, and able to do it. I do try so hard to stay up on my LinkedIn correspondence and I think I've been getting better, but oh, it's exhausting sometimes, but I also love it. So don't stop. <laughs> I do love hearing from you guys, even if I can't always thoughtfully reply as much as I want to. So anyway, that's, that's that. There was some questions around like, could these platforms bypass all these problems with cryptocurrency, but the problem is it hasn't been adopted by enough users. So this is something that will continue to be talked about as user-generated content really becomes the norm in lots of different ways. I actually was contacted by a company that was trying to create a website similar to OnlyFans, but they wanted some help understanding the risks. And oh my gosh, after talking to this, to one of the founders, for about 20 minutes, I was like, I, I I basically talked myself out of a job and was like, uh, have you thought about this? How about that? What about that? I think sometimes people who haven't been in e-commerce think they can just say, we're not going to allow any sexual content or we're not going to offer any adult or we're not going to allow it. And they think that like people just won't try. And so when I started to ask like, well, who's going to be, you know, monitoring the content, what providers are you using? Da, 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 they had no idea. So I think in the South, in the U.S., they would say, bless their heart. I never heard back. And that's okay. I would much rather scare them at the beginning than have them lose everything halfway through or at the end. So I don't like to scare anyone, but if people aren't thinking these things through, they really have to. So that is that story. I'm going to look how I'm doing on time. All right. I think I've got time for one more I think I'm going to wait. There's a couple of really good surveys and studies that have come out recently on online fraud. And I think I'm just going to do a whole episode on these because I also want to share how I use this information when talking to prospective clients as well as current clients and executives especially. So I'm going to save that. The last story I found was just kind of interesting, mostly because I hadn't really thought of it before, but it makes perfect sense, unfortunately. And this is the headline is a mom, because this was in the UK, we would say a mom over here, falls victim to online scam as buyers travel hundreds of miles to her home. So basically, the short version of the story is that someone was selling items on Facebook Marketplace, they were uh, accepting payment via a digital wallet. And then saying, here's my address to go pick up the item. And unassuming people who had made purchases through that person who posted would drive to the address they were given. And this woman had no idea who they were or what they were there for. I think one of them was expecting a phishing alarm. I don't know what that is. And I didn't Google it before this. So I just was like, hmm, okay, it must be expensive. 
So essentially, this is just a case of, you know, false advertising, but they went a step further by providing a random address. And now this person who had nothing to do with the scams at all is having random people drive, you know, hundreds of miles, hundreds of kilometers to their house and having to say you were scammed. It reminds me a little bit of some of the scams we've seen around review fraud. So for websites that offer reviews, again, user-generated content, I think this is really something that a lot of companies underestimate the responsibility of maintaining and moderating and having really thorough processes and policies around. Uh, Very few companies get it right, in my opinion, at least thoroughly. And that can also get them in a lot of trouble. There's been a lot of headlines about companies that have had issues with, you know, whether it's disinformation or really big issues on user-generated content. But at the same time, there's also a lot of really good benefits out of it. So, you know, while my job is to kind of focus on that one to 3% of bad activity on a website, that does mean that there's, you know, 97 to 99% of good activity on each of those. So keep that in mind. I'm not saying it's bad. It's just it can cause problems. So you really need to think it through if you're going to offer it on your site or if you're thinking about it. But in this case, it reminded me of so websites that offer reviews on products, often, especially if they, they're a third party marketplace and they have other sellers on there. Sometimes, well, what used to happen is they would just hire call centers or outsource it to just write all these bogus reviews for orders, but especially on Amazon. And this is public. That's why I'm saying their their name. But then Amazon was right, rightly required them to have a verified purchase. Well, once they had to have a verified purchase, then what would happen is a lot of times these third-party sellers would just send merchandise to random addresses and they would pay for it. But I mean, it was to them, right? So is that money laundering? Do they even make a payment on that? I don't know how that works, but it's basically like recycling money sort of, except for your small fee to Amazon, but those reviews can be more sales. So they would send items to random people. And then once they were sent once the tracking number showed that they were sent then the actual seller or an outsourced company that they would pay to do this for them would access the account and because they would just make up an account to do this and leave a review so now you have people a lot of times in the us and uk and other places that have decent postal systems you have them receiving these very random items and they don't know why i (laughs) Funny little story. There's somebody in the payments industry that I'm close with and just very good friends with. I mean, back when I was more in payments, I, I was kind of equal payments, equal fraud. We used to be known as the payments twins at some industry events. She randomly texted me a couple years ago. No, it was last year, actually, because it was during COVID and asked if I had sent her something. And it was something that probably would go more with the last story than anything innocent. And I was like, why would you think, why would you, I was really curious why she would assume that I would send that to her anonymously or at all. But then I said, you know, I bet, did you get anything else? No, but this is really random to, you know, we're kind of going through, I said, I bet it was a review scam. And sure enough, she was finally able to talk to someone at the marketplace. She talked to many people before that, that wouldn't give her any answers because of privacy but she just kept saying, I did not send this to me. They said, you know, it looked like 
a review. Well, I had told her, I said, ask if you'd reviewed the product. <laughs> if the, you know, if the account assigned to your or connected to your address had re reviewed the product, just like, you know, play dumb. Don't say you didn't order it. Just say, Hey, I'm just curious. Did I already review the product? And sure enough, she had. So I still don't know why she was, I hope that she called other people before she, you know, reached out to me to ask. I actually didn't ask that question, but it is happening. So this, this Facebook marketplace scam is a version of that, except for it's sending real people to an, somebody else's house, which I think could be really scary and in some ways dangerous. So these are all things that, you know, fraud people want to know. A lot of times there's triangulation on marketplaces within goods from e-commerce, but this is just straight up lying and fake ads. And it does sound like Facebook is taking them down as they're being reported, but I don't know how many times this has to happen or how many, you know, a lot of times they'll advertise in spurts and send, you know, 20 people to the same address at a time. So just things to be aware of. With that, I am almost at the hour mark. I, it's been a long day here. It's the end of Monday and I have been up since very, very early. So I'm sorry if I sound a little tired and a little bit tongue tied, but I wanted to make sure that I got this out there for you guys. I, you know, really just think that it's important for all of us to stay connected. I have an interview lined up for this week. So for next week's episode to talk to somebody about NFT fraud, I'm really curious about that. What types of fraud are um, targeting NFTs, non-fungible tokens in the crypto world? There's been a lot of talk around those, but I haven't really heard anyone talk about the fraud around it. So I'm excited about that. And there are some other announcements coming as well. So thanks so much for listening and uh, please rate and review this where you can. Tell your friends, post it on LinkedIn. I really appreciate it. And I look forward to talking to you next time. again to Sardine for sponsoring this episode of Fraudology and for supporting information sharing and collaboration across the fraud fighter ecosystem. You can learn more about the team and their mission at Sardine via the link in today's episode description.